If you would, turn to the Bible to Revelation chapter 19. I'm so glad to say that. After a six-week break, as we went to the Advent season and Christmas holiday passages and then uh, New Year's Sunday last week, we have not been in Revelation for six weeks, but now we're back. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Hopefully, you still remember some of that. We covered the first 18 chapters, got into chapter 19. Today, we're going to start at chapter 19 and go uh, from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. In your bulletin, it says, the four names of Jesus as he comes riding on a white horse. This passage is uh, awesome. It's huge. I told my kids on the way to church, this is one of the very best passages, and they need to make sure they're listening today. But it's also rather unique because we get four different names of Jesus. And that got me thinking about names and nicknames You know, it's not that uncommon to find somebody where at work he goes by this name, and at home he goes by this name, and at school he goes by this this name, and you don't don't always know that that's talking about the same person. How many nicknames do you have? What do people call you? I love that old comment that you often hear a man say where he says, I don't care what you call me as long as you don't call me late for dinner. You heard that before? I like that one. We don't care what you call us as long as you don't call me late for dinner. But this had me thinking about nicknames, and I'm not a big movie guy, but one of my absolute favorite movies of all time is The Sandlot, that classic old baseball movie from kids back in the day. And there's that scene where the new boy on the block uh, says, they're talking to him about Babe Ruth, the great baseball player, and he doesn't know who that is. If you've seen that movie, you remember that scene. He doesn't know who Babe Ruth is. It's a wild scene. And so down the line, all the baseball players, the kids in the the neighborhood in a row start throwing out all of these nicknames of Babe Ruth. You remember that? They said, you don't know who the Sultan of Swat is, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino, right? And they're, they're saying all these nicknames. It's an awesome, awesome scene. He says, they, he says to them, I thought you were talking about Bambi. <laughs> and that's when he says, that wimpy deer? It's a great scene. But it reminds us that this one guy, Babe Ruth, has been called many, many different things. And they all work. And if you knew baseball, you knew that. There's a similar thing going on with our God. The Bible, a long book, gives us many, many, many names for God. It's a neat study. I remember years ago there was a poster. You may have seen it before. It looks like this, the color. I know you can't read that, but I know that the color might stir your memory. It was a poster that gave us the names of God, not so much Jesus, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this poster says, he shall be called. I want to read this to you. These are names in the Bible referring to God. Advocate, Lamb of God, the resurrection and the life, shepherd, bishop of souls, judge, Lord of lords, man of sorrows, head of the church, master, Faithful and true witness, rock, high priest, the door, living water, bread of life, rose of Sharon, 
Alpha and Omega, True Vine, Messiah, Teacher, Holy One, Mediator, the Beloved, Branch, Carpenter, Good Shepherd, Light of the World, Image of the Invisible God, the Word, Chief Cornerstone, Savior, Servant, Author and Finisher of our Faith, the Almighty, Everlasting Father, Shiloh, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Great I Am, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Bridegroom, Only Begotten Son, Wonderful Counselor, Emmanuel, Son of Man, Dayspring, the Amen, King of the Jews, Prophet, Redeemer, Anchor, Bright Morning Star, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? All of those names come out of the Bible. And if I were to read just one of those and say, who's that speaking of? You would know that's God. The Bible gives us many, many, many names of God. But the Bible also does what we just sang about. It places high above everything else the name of Jesus as the Savior, the only true Savior of the world. Listen to these words as I read the these verses from Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we start speaking about the names of God there is a lot for us to get. There's a lot being explained. There's a lot being carried. There's a lot to be understood through that. In our passage today, we see heaven opened and a white horse with a rider coming. This is the return of Jesus. This is the second coming. This is Christ returning. Now, the Bible describes these, these events in a lot of different ways. We read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about the, the, the heaven open and the voice of an angel and the cry of an archangel and the loud trumpet sound. We've already seen in Revelation several times referring to the end of the world and the return of Christ and the judgment that will come. And this passage too, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, is another picture, another scene of the return of Christ. One commentator has said, the threads are being gathered together to be tied into a memorable knot. There are several different pictures of what the end of the world, the judgment of God, and the return of Christ the Savior will be like. Today I want us to focus in on the four names of Jesus as he comes riding on a white horse. Read with me in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the most remarkable scene. The Bible teaches throughout that one day God will judge the entire world. And the Bible teaches throughout that that God that will judge the entire world is a loving Father, patiently waiting that all would come to faith and repentance by trusting in Christ, who he sent into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. As we study the end times and the return of Christ and the one riding on a white horse with all authority and in heaven on earth, one who looks like a judge and is worthy to judge, may we remember that he is also the one who has laid down his life for us. Today, as we walk through this passage, I want us to look at the four names. Our first one here is in verse 11. And it is faithful and true. For you kids that are using the listening page today to follow along with the sermon, that's point number one, faithful and true. The first name that we see there, and it's in verse 11. Like many of the scenes in the Bible, Old Testament and New, it's heaven opened and a white horse. There are other passages in Revelation where we see a white horse, and we thought there that that wasn't necessarily Jesus. Could have been, could not have been. It wasn't very clear. But here, there is no question about it that this is Jesus. The one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True. That's the first name that we see, and what a good picture that is. The whole Bible has been telling us that God is faithful. The whole Bible has been showing us that God is true. Those are two good words that all of us admire no matter what we're talking about. We sure hope the people at the bank are faithful and true, don't we? We sure, ho- we sure hope the teachers of our, of our kids are faithful and true, don't we? We hope they're not cheating behind the scenes. We hope, not do- we hope they're not doing things that they shouldn't be doing. We sure hope that our neighbors are faithful and true. Faithful and true are words that are just so admirable. They are characteristics that you and I admire no matter who we're talking about. Here, in this first mention, 
Jesus returning is called faithful and true. The Bible teaches us that there is only one God. People talk about there being other gods, but there is only one true and living God. The greatest being cannot be matched. That's the one true God. That's the creator of all things. That's the Father in heaven. And for God to be God, there can be nothing wrong, nothing bad, nothing false in him. The one true God is completely good. There's no way that he could not be good if he's God. If there's any chance that there's something better than God, then what we thought was God would not be God, and that thing that which is better, the best, the most good, is God. There's only one. He's the highest. But there's no sin or error, no mistakes. He does nothing wrong. He is always true. And in being always true, he then operates, functions, works, does what he does in accordance with his truth and holiness. He is that good. You might describe his truthfulness being lived out and worked out as faithful. And we love the word faithful. Like the person that opens the doors of any organization. And they've been trained to open the doors at this time. They're always there to open the doors at that time. Like the child that needs and is so dependent upon their mother And the mother that so often, daily, regularly, constantly provides whatever that young child needs. Faithfulness is a beautiful characteristic. And faithfulness is a characteristic lived out of truthfulness. It is doing what is right or doing what is true. At the end of the world, in the return of Christ, on the brink of the great white throne judgment, Jesus is called here faithful and true. The opposite of truth and faithfulness will often disappoint us and let us down. And I know you've been let down before. I'm let down every day here in Fairdale when I pull up to the Dollar General. I don't know who's in charge of it, who owns it, who runs it. I don't know, but that is bad. I wish they had never built it. And I benefited from that store so many times stopping by there at first. But we've been let down in life, and certainly Dollar General is a small joke, and I know that. But we've all been let down before in bigger ways. We've all been let down and disappointed and done wrong. And that can be very hurtful. We find ourselves living in light of disappointments, frustrations, pains, so much so that they will often turn us off to the very thing. I used to not go to the family dollar anymore once they built the Dollar General, but I've switched. Now I don't pull into the Dollar General because now I'm going to the family dollar. And that's the way it works when you're let down or disappointed. Well, I want to remind you here today that there have been a lot of things that have let us down and disappointed us in life. But the Bible pleads with us to understand it was not Jesus. It is not Jesus. He is faithful and true. He is faithful and true to you. 
He is always right and good. He does not make mistakes. And he makes sure that he continues in that direction with faithfulness. Several years ago, I learned a song. You might know it by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It was written in 1987. And the theme of it or the chorus of it is this very idea that my Redeemer is faithful and true. Have you heard that song? I want to read the lyrics to you. I love this song. He says, as I look back on the road I've traveled, I see so many times he's carried me through. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my life, my Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he has said, he will do. And every morning, his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Second chorus says, second verse says, My heart rejoices when I read the promise. There is a place I'm preparing for you. I know someday I'll see my Lord face to face because my Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. And in every situation, he has proved his love to me. When I lack the understanding, he gives more grace to me. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he has said, he will do. And every morning, his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. As we get to the end of the Bible... And we're at Revelation chapter 19. We are about finished with the Word of God moving through it. It is a scene that you need to remember when heaven opens and Christ appears. The one sitting on that horse is called Faithful and True. That's the first name for us this morning. After it says he's called faithful and true, it it clarifies that therefore in righteousness he judges and makes war. And we've been saying this now for several chapters in Revelation. There's a chance that you might see something that God does and you think about it through your experience rather than thinking about it through God's truth and you want to try to blame God with doing something wrong. And the Bible would have none of that. If God decides to judge and make war, then it is good for God to judge and make war. If if people have sinned against God and wronged him, and he's been patient with them for years and hundreds of years and for lifetimes and for thousands of years, when he finally says, okay, I'm coming back, this is the end, it is good and right for him to do that. He's warned and warned and warned time and time again. In a real sense, we warn each other every Sunday together that our loving Father in heaven tells us to stop rejecting him and stop ignoring him and to turn to him. And so here it says this. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He rightly does these things. Verse 12 gives us a little bit of a more of a picture. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That's intense. And on his head are many diadems. He's majestic. He's powerful. His eyesight is everywhere. The Bible teaches us that he sees everything. And then in verse 12, we get to the second name. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This one's fascinating, isn't it? On one hand, he's the faithful and true. We know that, man. We can identify him. 
We read the Bible. There's God. That's what he does. There's God. That's what he does. Oh, that's how he treats those people. Oh, I love what he's doing there. We love the stories of the Bible where God comes through doing God things and making himself known, glorifying himself in the way that he loves and serves and helps and teaches. We know God is faithful and true, but on the other hand, he has a name no one knows but himself. Isn't this fascinating? What does that even mean? Well, I think that this here is a way of showing us that yet again, God is bigger than we can even realize. There's a sense in which, man, this is a long book, and there's a lot in here. It's 66 books. It's so many pages. I mean, it's nearly 2,000 pages of double column. There's a lot here. And so if you went to work on this and you made it your biggest task in life is to learn this. Let's say you memorized the whole Bible. Let's say you had this thing memorized. You know every name of God. You know as much about God as you could possibly know. The Bible teaches us that you're only scratching the surface. The Bible teaches us that the depths of God and the breadth of God and the width of God and the height of God is more than you can even imagine. He is altogether good and faithful and true. And so I think this description here is just a reminder of showing us in a little passage where he's got four names. One of them is, you don't know everything about him. He's God. There's a sense when you commit yourself to something that you want to master it. Perhaps you have a hobby or an interest or a, or a, or a field or a, a line of work or whatever where you know all that there is to know about it. And somebody might say, hey, if you've got a question about this, go to them because they'll know just like that what you're talking about. And we think that we can become experts in things, and then we can become experts in things, although in our humility we, we, we might often want to remind ourselves, hey, I'm still learning. But with our Savior Jesus... We are reminded here, okay, first of all, the scene is one that we're never going to be experts on. The sky opening up and a horse and this imagery and symbolism. Nobody, there's not a Bible scholar in the world, not a preacher, not a Christian, not a person in the pew that thinks they're an expert on this stuff. But this passage here is reminding us of how huge God is. You need to be reminded in your faith that you don't have your hands fully around all that God is. You believe in him. You know what he's revealed to us. You read your Bible. You listen to your pastor. You're trying to grow in the truth. Amen. But we are far from experts. Do you remember that neat little ending in the Gospel of John where John starts telling about all the things that Jesus has done? Listen to this one verse. This is John 21, 25. Listen to this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. we got four Gospels. we got 27 books in the New Testament. The Bible tells us a lot about what Jesus did. But John writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you remember that verse? That's John 21, 25. If we wrote down everything that God did, the world could not contain the books. What a neat thought. There is so much going on in the world that God is doing. In his omnipresence, in his omnipotence, in his grandeur and his majesty. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. 
He's the creator of all. And he is so powerful. He has all authority. He is so powerful that the way that he created was just by speaking it. He didn't have to flex his muscles or work his butt off. He didn't have to do all this major stuff. He just does what he pleases, the Bible says. The Bible says that in the incarnation, God became a man. Jesus didn't become God. Jesus has always been God. But Jesus became a man in the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. And while we have read and studied him and we are fascinated by our Lord and Savior, he's our king that we follow. Our whole lives are surrendered to him. What he says for me to do is what I aim to do. He's our king and savior, our Lord. And while our eyes are on him and we seek to obey him out of love and faith, we're reminded here that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What a thought. Schreiner writes, there is a sense in which we know Jesus and a sense in which he is hidden from us. He is both imminent and transcendent, near to us and hidden from us. We truly know God through Jesus Christ, but we do not know him exhaustively. We do not know him fully. That's the idea here. After that, in verse 13, it says, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And I appreciated our opening song today, that old classic hymn, Are You Washed in the Blood? And the blood is a big part of the life of Christ. For on the cross, Christ shed his blood. He was crucified. He was killed on the cross. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This could be referring to the blood that Christ spilt But since this scene has less to do with the cross work and more to do with the judge work that Christ does, I think more so this blood is referring to the judgment that is coming. But I'm not so sure about that. It could go either way. Nevertheless, we have Christ returning in heaven open, and he's riding on a white horse, and the one that's faithful and true, and the one that has a name that no one knows is coming. Verse 13 tells us the third name. The Word of God. Look at verse 13. For you kids using the listening page, number one was faithful and true. Number two, the name no one knows but himself. Number three, the Word of God. The second half of verse 13 says, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now we're getting to the point where it's like Babe Ruth and all of his nicknames because verse 11 says he's called faithful and true. Verse 12 says it's a name that no one knows. Verse 13 says he's called the Word of God. He's called a lot of things. He's so complex that there's a lot of different ways to identify him or recognize him or strengths to point out about him or characteristics to admire in him. Here he's called the Word of God. This one is not so so difficult to understand because we've been taught this throughout the whole New Testament. Jesus is himself God's message to the world. In God revealing himself to us, he sent us his Word. In God sending his word to us, he also sent us his son. And his son is the full fulfillment, the, the, the full picture, the clarity of what God was like. Jesus is even called the word of God. 
Flip with me to John chapter 1. For this point, okay, this Word of God name, I'm going to show you something from John 1 and Hebrews 1. John 1 says, now remember, this is John that wrote Revelation. Same guy. So same guy writing Revelation here is this this guy writing this, the Apostle John. The beginning of John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The only God that no one has ever seen has been explained and revealed to us fully in Jesus. And there's no question about it that he's the word here in verse 14. It says he's the only son from the Father. Here we have the Bible telling us that Jesus is the word, revealing God to us. Well, now look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is a little bit harder to find, so I'll give you a second to find it. Hebrews chapter 1. The first three verses of Hebrews pick up this same idea. God revealing himself to the world through Jesus. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, look at this, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the word of God. He is the revealing of all that God is. If you want to know God and who he is and what he's like, believe in Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To not know Jesus is to not know the Father. 
And Jesus makes that very point in John chapter 8 in his debate with the Pharisees. He is called in Revelation 19 the Word of God. Now look here at verse 13 in Revelation 19. From there immediately we have the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. When Jesus comes back, what's he coming back for? He's returning. We just came through Christmas, and we use that word Advent so much, and that word Advent means coming. So Advent during Christmas is referring to the first coming. What we're studying today is the second Advent, the second coming. When Jesus comes back, what's he coming back for? Two things. Two simultaneous things. Saving all those who are waiting for him. And judging all those that aren't. And the Bible speaks about this time and time again. Commentator Wilcox says, the two sides of the divine character, that's, that's a neat way to put it, the two sides of the divine character, his kindness and his severity, the kindness and the severity of God are equally plain to see in the return of Christ. The two sides of the divine character, the kindness and the severity of God, are equally plain to see. That's what the commentator Wilcox says. But he points us to Romans 11.22. Listen to this verse. This is the book of Romans, 11.22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. The Bible tells us that God is a loving father, quick to receive all who will turn to him. Loving, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, willing to forgive, ready to forgive all sins. What kindness there is in God. What patience there is in God. Think about this. Had God given up on his patience two years ago, where would you be? Had God given up on his patience six months ago, where would you be? Ten years ago, where would you be? Twenty-five years ago, where would you be? If the sky was to open up and Christ was to return and the two sides of God's character, the severity and the kindness were to be drawn out, which side would you have been on? And the Bible says both are coming, and it is him described as the word of God that introduces this to us. Yes, he's coming down to rule the world with a rod of iron. Yes, he's coming down to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been held back for far too long, one might say. But when it finally comes, may we know that the one who is faithful and true, the one who is big and majestic, the one who is the word of God who has revealed to us love and hope and peace and salvation is the one doing it. May we admire and believe God 
for how he is always good and true and consistent. That's the third name, the word of God. Then the last one, number four, perhaps the biggest and the best, king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. I don't know if thigh tattoos are a thing, but it sounds like one here. But it also may be on some sort of clothing that he's wearing since it's on his robe. I don't know. I don't know the significance of the name being on the thigh. I looked that up, tried to find that. Didn't see anything that sounded good enough. I think the bigger point here is there's no question about who is coming on the horse, why he's coming on the horse, what he's doing and coming on the horse. There's no question about the return of Christ that the king over every king, the Lord over every Lord is coming back. That's the fourth name. For you kids using the listening page, that's the fourth answer. We've seen this before. If you flip back just to chapter 17, verse 14, 17, 14, we have... They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. We've heard that before. You know that name, King of kings and Lord of lords, but here we have it at the end in Revelation. That's the fourth name. There are a lot of important people in the world. We watched Home Alone 2 last night. I love watching those. Laugh, Laugh so much, even though I've seen them so many times. And Home Alone 2 showed us Young Donald Trump, did y'all remember that he's in that movie? Young, skinny Donald Trump is in Home Alone 2. Well, since that movie, he became, that movie was years ago, last millennium. Since that movie, Donald Trump has become a very, very big and influential and powerful person. There are lots of powerful people in the world. We don't use the word king here. We have presidents here. But there's some places in the world where they still have kings. They still have lords. There's some places in the world where people are bowed down to and worshiped. My point is, there's a lot of powerful people in the world. They say things and it happens. You watch the news and you see people like that. There are people today with so much power that we're scared of how much power they have and how many people listen to them and follow them. Here, not just as a message for us today, which it is, But more importantly than that, at the end of the Bible, as the Bible is telling us what it's going to be like in the end of the world, you are to be comforted in knowing nobody has more power than Jesus. No matter where you're from or what you're like, no matter what you're into, you're going to face Jesus. And he will win. He reigns. He is the king over everything. He is the Lord over everything. Our passage from here leads us into verses 17 to 21. And here we simply have a scene of what he's going to do when he returns. He starts to gather up. He's going to have the judgment. He's going to save those that believe. He's going to judge those that don't. 
Those that are believing are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we've already read about. Those that aren't believing are going to be judged and killed under the wrath of God. There it describes the birds coming to eat that. I don't know if that's literal or not, but it's simply pointing out that if you are saved by God, you're invited in with him, and if you're not, you're judged. That's the picture. The bigger thing I want to point out here is starting in verse 19. Look at it. And I saw the beast. Do you remember the beast? If you've been following Revelation with us, you remember that the devil is described as the dragon. This is introduced to us in in earlier chapters. The devil is the dragon. But then it tells us, starting in, I think, chapter 13, that the dragon has these two major powers working for him, this beast and that beast, the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. And then later, the second beast is described as the false prophet, and that's what we have here. And I told y'all, I think this is getting into world religions, and I think this is getting into like commerce and enterprise and, and success in the world, things that can consume us without God consuming us. Things that can become very important to us without God becoming very important to us. Well, look what it says in verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those. Notice, he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. The sword coming out of the mouth is representative of the word of God. Everything that opposes God will be dealt with. One commentator writes, the beast and the false prophet are the very principles of evil at work in this world. And when they are thrown into the lake of fire, that will be the end of history. It is at the close of the age, as Jesus tells us, that his angels will take all causes of sin and all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. Schreiner writes, the armies are facing one another and poised to fight. But the battle turns out to be ridiculously easy. Jesus seizes the beast and the false prophet and casts them alive into the lake of fire and sulfur. Listen to this. As 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, the Lord will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The power and the glory of the beast and the false prophet, though they seem remarkable, are no match for Jesus Christ. There is coming a day that in many ways seems far away, not realistic. But the one who is faithful and true and who is keeping his promises is the one who is telling us this, that one day he's coming back. And when he comes back, it will be the end of the world. He will judge the world. And yet, as that judgment approaches any moment, there is salvation through the work of Christ on the cross. Let me remind you here this morning, this coming is not his first coming. This is not the first time that we have seen Jesus. 
He came the first time. Humble and lowly. To young Joseph and Mary. And we just spent six weeks admiring, fascinated, fascinated over the details of that story. He was born in a manger. He grew up. He loved and served. He was nothing special for people to look at. And while he never did anything wrong, he was crucified, despised and rejected by men. And he was killed for us. May you not make the mistake of trying to judge God and whether you like him or not simply off of this Revelation 19 white horse passage. May you love this passage because baby Jesus is also King Jesus. Because the one that came at Christmas is the one known as faithful and true. Are you trusting in Christ? It's still the start of a new year. For some of you all, you weren't here last week, so this is your first Sunday, your first time hearing the word in this year. Will you commit yourselves fully to Jesus? Will you, will you acknowledge that, hey, everybody in my world ain't, ain't doing this, but I'm going to because he's faithful and true. Will you surrender everything to say, I'm going to follow this guy here, this man, this Savior Jesus is who I'm going to follow. That's who I'm going to live for. I get to go through the car rider line in the mornings. I hate the car rider line. Kids don't know how to get out of the car on their own. It takes way too long. But often as we're going through there, I'll, I'll pray with the kids, but I'll remind them, not every morning, but most mornings I'll say, hey, I know and you know, there ain't a lot of people there that are living for Jesus. I know that. Not a lot of teachers, not a lot of students, not a lot of people there living for Jesus, but we are. And even if other people aren't, we're going to. And I got your back and you got my back and your church does too. There are a lot of people that are going to live for this Jesus. There are a lot of people that are ready for this scene to unfold and for us to be saved by our Savior that died on the cross for our sins. That be you. Last week's whole sermon was on, let's get our priorities straight. The top priority for me and for you is that this Jesus, this Savior, be our Savior, be our top priority. I heard one of my friends give this illustration. I want to share it with you. I don't wear ties that much anymore. I don't know if there's a single tie in here today. Church attire has changed, hasn't it? Pastor Josh Womble's got on his tie today, and we appreciate that. I wear ties a lot for weddings and funerals. Other than that, I think the last time that I wore a tie was Last year's Valentine's date with my daughters. But when you wear a tie, you got a button all the way to the top. Right? Supposed to. My neck's getting bigger and maybe I can't. But you got a button all the way to the top. And I don't know if women will get this, but men will. You ever been buttoning your shirt? 
got about six or eight buttons, and you get to the top, and it's like off like that. It's the worst. It's the worst. You missed the, you missed the bottom one. You didn't know it. And you get up here, and you're like, so then what you have to do? Unbutton all the way back down. <laughs> hey, you got to get the first one right. That's what Revelation 19 has for us this morning. You might have several things in life that you think you're doing right with. But the first, most important of all, is him. Don't let it, don't let it get to the end. All these buttoned right, all in the middle buttoned right. Don't let it get to the end and you're like, how was I so off? You missed the first one. The first priority for us today, y'all, is this Jesus. Faithful and true. A name no one knows but him. The word of God. King of kings. Lord of lords. Trust him. Believe him. Father in heaven, we thank you for revelation. What a study it has been, is, and will continue to be for us. Thank you, God, for these names of Jesus that here today has sent us down multiple ideas and trains of thought. God, we thank you that Jesus is our Savior. And that upon trusting in him and turning from our sins, we can be forgiven. Thank you for that. God, thank you for the strength of knowing that he is totally in charge and nothing can go against him. Even these big powers, dragons and beasts and false prophets are easily done away with. Oh, Father, cause us to make Jesus our top priority. God, cause us to believe and commit to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.